0: Brought to you by me, author Liz Harfel. Country Women's Wisdom is a podcast sharing inspiring true stories, treasured vintage recipes, and useful household hints. It draws on the practical know-how and everyday experience of Australian women. Taking on lessons hard won from living through world wars, economic depression, natural disaster, isolation, and personal tragedy, they learn how to make a little go a long way while nurturing themselves and their families. The title of this episode is Everything's Coming Up Apples and I'm going to share with you a recipe and the stories of two remarkable women, one a pioneer of the women's movement internationally who came from Tasmania and the other a third generation orchardist from New South Wales. First to Tasmania and Emily Dobson. Now i The reason that I love Emily so much is a story that one of her granddaughters told about Emily, who seems to have been quite a formidable woman. Emily was the youngest of 11 children and she was born at Port Arthur in 1842. Her father was a government official serving in the penitentiary system. When Emily was in her mid-twenties, she married Henry Dobson, a wealthy lawyer who later entered politics and became Premier of Tasmania. They were both genuine philanthropists, keenly interested in social reform And Emily became very well known for her campaigning on women's welfare issues, well beyond the shores of Tasmania. Um, In fact, she made a remarkable 33 trips overseas attending gatherings of the International Council of Women, and she served as president of the Australian delegation for about 15 years. I found out a little bit more about the woman behind this reputation when I discovered some memories of Emily written by her granddaughter Gladys. One of my favourite stories about Emily came from her time visiting in Europe in her capacity with the Women's Council when she apparently got to meet the last emperor of Germany, Kaiser Wilhelm II. Here is what Gladys had to say about her grandmother. For all the good works, and they were many, our grandmother was a formidable woman. Even the Duke of Clarence, when Prince of Wales, had to suffer a rebuke when he made an uncalled-for remark to her at a ball at government house in Hobart. Kaiser Wilhelm II was also surprised by her at a function at Potsdam. No woman had ever dared to object to anything he said until Granny spoke her mind. I do not know what subject he raised, but his opinion did not agree with Granny's ideas, and she had no hesitation in telling him so. Granny was a great traveller. She had been to every continent and numerous countries. She crossed from Japan, took the Trans Siberian Rail to Moscow, and trained on to St. Petersburg. She also visited Alaska. Sometimes her journeys were in connection with some organization, the National Council of Women was one, and sometimes for other reasons, family and so on. Granny could make herself understood in several languages, but in German she was fluent. In spite of her political and social activities, and running various societies, she found time to make good use of her abilities as an actress and musician of high amateur status. Hobart, in spite of having the oldest theatre in Australia still in use, was off the beaten track, and players and singers seldom made the trek south. Granny and Mr A.G. Webster, who founded the well-known firm bearing his name, put on a play in which they both appeared and for which they drilled the other players. Granny told me that Mr. Webster had the most expressive face she had known, and in comedy scenes she often found it hard to stop herself from laughing. But her greatest achievement was in staging some of the Gilbert and Sullivan operas. She coached all the singers in her drawing room, both in their singing and acting. Our amazing grandmother was a very good chess player. When playing against young people, or any poor player, she would start without her queen, a big handicap indeed. On board ship, she played a lot and was never beaten. On one voyage, after calling at Naples, the captain told her that a friend of his who had just joined the ship was a very keen chess player and would she be kind enough to give him a game. They had a good tussle and he won. Only then did the captain reveal that she'd been playing against one of the European champions. There was laughter in which Granny joined and she was congratulated on the fight she'd put up. Granny was so talented that she had successes in two other fields, painting and cooking. Conrad Martins was delighted when she showed him many of her watercolours, and he said he would give her a dozen of his in exchange for a dozen of hers. What higher praise could anyone expect than that? Six of the dozen he gave her were signed, the other six were not, and it is supposed that two or three of these were by his most advanced pupils. As to the cooking, Granny had a way of coaxing the well-known chefs around Europe into giving her the recipes of dishes and sauces she had liked when dining in restaurants. As she was a good cook from a young age, she easily learned to translate the recipes into the finished articles and she taught her own cooks to handle the job properly. At one point she failed to get a good enough cook in Hobart and asked my mother to find one in Sydney and bring her down when we made our annual visit, which was nearly due. This woman was good, too good, for she realised the value of Granny's recipe book and when she left her place a few years later it was found to be missing but it was so difficult to prove that she had stolen it so nothing was done. One of the governors of Tasmania at this time was without a wife and he felt he needed a hostess when he gave a ball or any other public functional at government house so he asked Granny to act as hostess on those occasions which she did. Granny had an autograph book of most of the famous people who visited Australia. Mark Twain asked Granny where he could obtain some leg irons that were plentiful at one time at Port Arthur. This she managed to do. In her autograph book he wrote, as far as I remember, Dear Mrs Dobson, thank you for the leg irons of my dear departed grandfather. In her home state, Emily worked tirelessly with Henry to form community organisations and improve social welfare for the underprivileged. Um, In fact, Gladys tells a story about there being a family joke that Emily was the president of nearly everything. Among the causes, the couple championed together was establishing the Hobart Free Kindergarten Association in 1910. It ran free preschools for children of the poor and in that way could ensure that they'd get at least one decent meal a day. Towards the end of the Depression in 1933, the Association published a cookbook to help fund the building of a new kindergarten, as well as its ongoing work, training teachers and educating more than 260 children. And I fell in love with this little book as soon as I saw it. It's called The Cookery Calendar from Apple Land, and it pays tribute to Tasmania's reputation as a leading apple producer. The cover is gorgeous. It's an Art Deco piece of wonder with two orange rosy apples taking centre stage. So it's designed to hang on the wall and there's a recipe for every day of the year. But in April every recipe for the month features apples and of course April was the height of apple picking season in Tasmania in those years. April is the height of apple picking season in my garden too. I have a small but very prolific pink lady apple tree, which has given me an embarrassment of riches this year in the way of fruit. So I've been revisiting a lot of my favourite apple recipes, and one of them comes from the cookery calendar from Apple Land. It's called Apple Schmarren. And it attracted my attention in the first place because I'd never heard of it. And then when I tried the recipe, it was so simple and so delicious and so economical in its component parts that I thought it was a recipe that more people should know about. I discovered um, that it originally came from Austria and that apparently the name comes from a slang term in German which means rubbish or nonsense, So it is quite permissible to make a complete mess of it. It's in fact a very simple form of apple pancake and it's perfect for brunch or a late breakfast on a sunny morning. So here are the ingredients. One heaped tablespoon of self-raising flour, a pinch of salt, one egg lightly beaten, two tablespoons of milk, one large apple, 15 grams of butter, two teaspoons of icing sugar so here is the method sift the heap tablespoon of self-raising flour into a medium bowl with the pinch of salt and then whisk in the egg until smooth then whisk in the two tablespoons of milk Peel and core the apple and cut it into quarters and then slice it thinly. And it is important that you slice the apple quite thinly um, so that it has a chance to soften in the very brief time it takes to cook this pancake. Now add the apple. The batter is going to be a little runny when you've finished mixing it together and don't worry, that's how it should be. It will actually set beautifully. Melt the 15 grams of butter in a small non-stick frying pan over medium heat. I used a pan that was about 20 centimetres in diameter for this recipe and it made the perfect pot-sized pancake, a, a generous serve for one or a more modest serving when shared between two. Once the butter starts to foam, pour all the batter into the pan and then just make sure the apple is evenly distributed. Leave it then to cook over a low heat until it's golden brown underneath and the batter is starting to set on top. You can aid this process by just putting a lid over the fry pan for a few minutes and that will speed up the setting process. Once it's golden brown underneath, use a large spatula to flip it carefully over and cook it on the other side. And this is where the name of the recipe comes in because if you make a mess of the process of flipping it over it doesn't matter if it becomes a bit messy a bit a bit of nonsense a little bit like scrambled eggs that's kind of permissible too once it's cooked all you have to do is dust it with a little bit of icing sugar and it's ready to serve Continuing the theme of apples, I thought I'd share with you a little bit of the story of a woman who I first met about seven years ago now when I was researching a book called Women of the Land. Lynette Ridout lives at Oakdale in New South Wales, not far out of Sydney, where she runs an orchard. Lynette is a third generation orchardist following on in the footsteps of her grandmother Brenda and her mother Audrey. And I guess the story for me with Lynette began with the respect and love that she has for her late grandmother, who was born in 1908 and lived through some pretty tough times, including the Great Depression of the 1930s and the Second World War. And the story that Lynette told me, the first story she told me when I met her, was about Brenda, as a young housewife, living above a grocery shop in Granville in Sydney, she married Leslie, whose family had owned the shop for many years, and they sold uh, fruit and vegetables. So during the Depression, Brenda took the leftover fruit and vegetables from the day um, and she also picked up some offcuts from the local butcher shop and boiled it all together into a big nutritious soup and she would leave it in a large boiler sitting on the back steps for anyone in need to come by and collect some. According to Lynette, Brenda had a heart of gold. She also had eight children and apparently returned to work within a day of giving birth to each one of them. In 1941, Leslie and Brenda sold the shop and moved to Wendon Orchard at Oakdale, southwest of the city in the Blue Mountains. The strictures of wartime were beginning to bite as the Second World War swept across Europe, and they thought life in the country would be better for their children. They'd actually owned the property. For about eight years, Leslie bought it in 1933, having come to know the district as a source of quality fruit and vegetables for his shop. In the meantime, he'd employed people to plant fruit trees and grow the vegetables and flowers that he needed. Two of their children, Audrey and her brother Roger, were already living there under the care of the farm manager Cliff Kelly and his wife, but now, with war on, the rest of the family followed suit. Leslie was an astute businessman, and he won some big contracts to supply the army with vegetables, so the enterprise grew pretty quickly. There was a lot of stone fruit, as well as seasonal plantings of cabbages and cauliflowers, potatoes and swedes, turnips, peas, beans and pumpkins. And they also built their own packing shed and purchased a fruit grader and a press to make the wooden packing cases that they needed to keep the fruit safe from damage during transport. After the war, they bought another property and expanded the enterprise, and Leslie became the largest orchardist in the Oakdale area, which at the time was full of orchards, very few of them left now, but it was a major industry for the area in those days. Lynette told me her grandmother never learnt to drive a motor car, in fact she thought they were way too fast. In fact I don't think she drove anything all her life Not even a tractor or a horse and cart They tried to teach her to ride a bike once And when Pa came home they reckoned Nan had enough skin off her to roof an outback Dunny So that was the first and last time she ever got on that damn contraption Apart from a major hailstorm which severely damaged their fruit crop in 1951, Leslie and Brenda led a relatively blessed life when it came to fending off the principal foes of every orchardist in the area, drought, pests and diseases, unseasonal rain and hail, until 1965, and in November of that year, just days before picking was due to start, a massive hailstorm smashed their entire crop, turning fruit and vegetables to pulp and stripping leaves from the trees. Shortly afterwards, at the age of 62, Leslie died from a cerebral hemorrhage and Lynette firmly believes that came in part from the enormous stress of that terrible event in the orchard. Devastated by the loss of her husband, Brenda had the Gapes family orchard label changed so the blue background became black as a sign of mourning and then she took charge of Wendon, and she kept it going for the next 25 years, initially with the help of her younger son Brian, before he too died tragically young, falling down dead in the orchard with an embolism when he was only 37, leaving behind a wife and three sons. Over the years, Brenda became known for her good head for business, a tough but fair woman who worked tirelessly not only to keep the orchard going, but to support her extended family in the local community. She continued to walk around the orchard at least once a day until she suffered a stroke at the age of 85. Lynette says she was an incredible woman. She gave everything she had. Nana was the carer. She was the matriarch of her extended family. Nan loved progress and always looked forward to the future, planning ahead, being prepared and encouraging change and innovation. She saw the first mail plane land in Parramatta Park in Sydney And she saw man land on the moon. It's hard to get your head around. Audrey met her husband, Leo, in the 1940s when she was only 15. He was 10 years older, a good-looking young man who rode an ex-army motorcycle, loved to dance, and was usually seen with a roll-your-own-cigarette hanging off his bottom lip. He had a reputation as a bit of a rebel. Audrey's parents were not too impressed with the relationship and effectively told Leo to bugger off, as Lynette explains it. But when Audrey was 18, he came back and gave every indication that he wasn't going anywhere. To prove his determination, in 1948, Leo scraped together £100 and bought the block of virgin bush that is now Top 40. Working at the time as a timber getter, felling trees and hauling logs out of a steep local forest, he applied his skills and set about clearing the block by hand in his spare time. Although he was only 162 centimetres tall, he was wiry and extremely handy with an axe. He also owned a former army blitz truck which he used to take the logs to the local sawmill where they were cut into timber for frames and floorboards so he could use them to start building a house. When she wasn't working at the local service station or on the family orchard, Audrey came along to help. She was even shorter than Leo. In fact, Lynette describes her as a real power pack who took four sugars in her coffee and had no trouble keeping up with him all day. She tells the story about before she knew she was pregnant with Lynette, her mum was out in the paddock jackhammering fence posts in solid rock. In 1952, Six weeks before Audrey's 21st birthday, her parents finally gave in and the couple were married. The rooms of the house weren't lined, there were no coverings on the floor, and the toilet was outside in the backyard, but they had a roof over their heads and they were happy. The initial years of their married life were tough, full of hard physical work, long days and scraping together every cent to establish the orchard and finish the house. They worked together whenever they could to clear the land, and they sowed green manure crops to improve the soil. But Audrey was often left to work on her own while Leo ran his logging business to earn money. In 1954, the logging job came to an end and Leo went to work at the local coal mines, taking the night shift so he had some daylight hours in the orchard. He worked dog watch for 15 years, starting at 11 o'clock at night and working until 7 in the morning. Then he'd come home, have breakfast and go to work on the farm until 3 in the afternoon. Audrey and Leo had given up on the idea of having children when Audrey became pregnant with Lynette. They'd been married for 22 years and doctors thought it was unlikely to happen. Then one day when she was 42, Audrey wasn't feeling too good, so she went to see the doctor. Leo was sitting in the waiting room when he raced out of his surgery, overlooking normal protocols to herald the good news to the entire clinic. Mr Ridout, Mr Ridout, you're going to be a father. Lynette says they just about had to scrape her dad off the floor. So Lynette was born in 1974, and a few days later she was brought home, and as she puts it, planted on Top 40. Always called Bub by her father, she was an active child who wanted to be part of everything, and Leo coped remarkably well with that, even though he was 53 when he became a dad. He would often take Lynette with him out into the orchard and let her play among the trees while he was working. At the age of two, Lynette was given her first set of blue overalls, just like the ones her parents wore when they were in the orchard. By the time she was three, she was learning how to pack apples, much to the amusement of family and friends who'd visit the shed just to see it. A gun packer, Leo had a reputation throughout the district for being able to pack apples quickly and with expert precision, so that the right number fitted perfectly in a case, all pointing the same way. He made Lynette a little wooden stool so she could stand on it and help. He would place the apples so the stalks always pointed towards the child, encouraging her to copy and place the bums towards him. Concentrating fiercely, she would attempt to remember this important pattern by picking up each apple, looking at it carefully and reciting bums to oo every time she put one down. Lynette often went to sleep in the packing shed while her parents worked tucked up safely in the timber apple bin which doubled as her playpen. She was lulled to sleep by the sounds of the grading machine and the roll of apples in an orchestra-like performance she later came to describe as the apple packer's lullaby. And I'm going to read you a part of that now. Mum was the maestro standing on her platform where the apples passed by for quality inspection. It was Mum who made the orchestra strike up when she turned the switches on one by one. The first switch was the hum of the big belt that carried the apples down the full length of the sizing mechanism and sounded like the brass section of the orchestra. The middle switch was the string section, tuning up as all nine rotary bins squeaked into action, each with a slightly different pitch and rhythm. The last switch was the polishing brushes and main conveyors, which were like a grand piano playing strong chords and lending a harmony to the music. Then after a couple of minutes of mum's overture, Dad's part in this concerto would begin. The percussion section of the orchestra, of which he played many parts, was strong. The metallic scrape of the steel stand being adjusted along its runner to the next hopper on the grater that was full of apples and needed to be packed out. The scrape and bump of a fresh cardboard box being put onto the stand ready for packing. The squeak and whoosh of a cardboard filler with all its little indentations to hold the apples in place being pushed to the bottom of the box. Then came the part of this concerto that I really liked. The staccato of the apples being picked up by Dad's strong but gentle brown hands and being packed into rows. This was punctuated by another scrape as the next filler was put into place. This sequence repeated itself three or four times depending on the size of the apples Dad was packing, which in turn determined the amount of layers of apples to a box. The crescendo came when Dad reached for the apple wrap, bump of hand onto the paper stack, tap of apple being picked up, gentle slap of apple coming into contact with tissue paper in left hand, scrunch of paper being dexterously folded and twisted around apple, the cushioned thud of papered apple being placed into a spot in the top layer, the piece of music complete with the whoosh and sigh of the full apple box as the lid was placed on and air rushed out. The case picked up and hefted onto the stack with a gentle thud and the whole symphony would start again. Top 40 today looks a little different than when Audrey and Leo were running it. Lynette is now custodian of the family orchard, and to survive in changing times, she's diversified the business. So you'll find a lot more there than the apple and stone fruit trees on which her parents relied. She, in particular, likes to grow unusual fruit and vegetables that she can sell at local farmers markets. And the... There's a huge variety, berries, potatoes, an extraordinary diversity of pumpkins that she's grown over the years, particularly heirloom varieties that she's brought in from the United States and Great Britain. Uh, They're particularly popular or have been with her customers at the Camden Market, where she's been a regular for some time. And she has added a new strand to the business that's distinctly her own, and that's growing Christmas trees and families for years now have been regular visitors to her property to um, cut and take home their preferred Christmas trees. She's kept that going despite drought in recent years and she was very lucky to survive with the orchard intact from the bushfires that surrounded her and produced some of the most horrifying images of the summer. Lynette is married now, and the next generation of the family is living on Top 40. When I interviewed Lynette to include her in my book, she was looking forward to the birth of her first baby. And I closed her story with her thoughts about what might happen in the future with her family and Top 40. And this is what she said. I want them to have the experience of what it is like to be a farmer, whether they decide to go on with it or not. I want to give them every chance of growing up the way I grew up, or the best I can given things are changing. They won't have the apple packers lullaby to go to sleep by, but they will have the sound of the mopoke owl at night, fresh air and dirt, and running free and wild through the paddock, not having to worry about traffic. That is all pretty special. Thank you for listening to this episode of Country Women's Wisdom. For more information about the podcast and my books, and for a copy of any of the recipes featured, please visit my website, lizharful.com, or you can follow me on Instagram and Facebook.